0: Today's daf is Lamed in Masechet Petzal. We are 10 lines from the top of Lamed Amud Aleph at the Mishnah. We're continuing here to discuss uh, parameters of tichum. When somebody has an object, what determines the limits on the range of <coughs> motion or travel of that object on the Yom Tov. So it says Hagachelet keragli a piece of coal, uh, which is... Uh, hats presumably follows the tchum of the owners. shall have it makom. But a flame by itself, it can go anywhere. Meaning, it's not limited by uh, it's not limited by the creator of the flame. In terms of tchum, shal Similarly, if you have a coal that belongs to the bet ha ba. If you benefit from it, you've committed sacrilege and benefiting from the bet ha in an unauthorized way. shall have it If there's just a flame. You're not allowed to benefit from it if it belongs to the Beit HaMikdash, but we wouldn't be considered uh, somebody who violated the prohibition of Meila if you did, so you wouldn't have to bring a korban for that. If a person on Shabbat transfers a coal, an ember, uh, into the Roshut HaRabim, into the public domain from a pri- private domain on Shabbat, he would be liable, but if it's just a flame, he would be exempt. Tanu Rabbanan, the Gemara says, the rabbis talk, there were th- there were five things that were said about a piece, a coal, a hot coal. First of all, when it comes to Tichum, the Gechelet follows the feet of the owners, whereas the flame by itself doesn't have any limit. We've seen this in the Mishnah already, these two, that a coal piece of coal of the Beta megdash there is a prohibition of me'ila and you are actually liable for me'ila if you benefit from it. Whereas the shalhevet, the flame itself, is not considered an object, so it's not considered to have substance. So therefore you would not be liable for that even though you're not supposed to benefit from it if it belongs to the Beit HaMikdash. If you have a coal that is designated for idolatry, so you would not be uh you, you're not allowed to benefit from, the, uh, from that in any way. If it's a flame, even though the flame was created for Avodah Zorah purposes, you're not liable for benefiting from the flame because it's not considered a substance, uh, as Rashi explains, because it says you shouldn't hold anything uh, from that which is designated to Avodah Zorah, but this is uh, something that's not considered to have substance. Amotzi <clears throat> if you take a coal out into the reliable we shall have it flame not uh, we saw that in the Mishnah also. if you if one is from his friend which means to say that he makes an oath that he's not going to benefit uh, from his friend in any way it's a way that people think uh, thing that people would do to show that they're swearing somebody off literally meaning they would they don't want anything to do with them they would say they swear not to benefit from anything that belongs to that person you're not allowed to benefit from his his coal but you would be, um, uh, you would be, uh, uh, you would be allowed to benefit from a uh, from from his uh, from his flame that he created because it doesn't have substance. So the difference between idolatry? The Sharia. When it comes to idolatry, we said that there's no prohibition at all in benefiting from the flame of Avodah Zarah. Whereas when it comes to um, When it comes to the flame that belongs to the Beit Hamikdash, we said you're not supposed to benefit, even though you're not liable. So since idolatry is something that's distasteful to people, they stay away from it and they don't want to have anything to do with it. So therefore, uh, we assume that they're not going to go. You know that we therefore we don't have to make it prohibited, even to partake of the flame, because you're not going to in any way benefit from anything else of it. However. So the rabbis didn't make a decree but whereas when it came to, the he- to Hekdesh, to the framework of the Beit HaMikdash where people don't find it distasteful, they know that it's holy but they don't find it distasteful, we're worried that if we allow you to benefit from the flame, you might come to benefit from something more substantive and therefore we, uh, we prohibit it, now uh, she says that even though gen- generally we do say <coughs> that people do separate from Hekdesh, it's not to the same level as they separate themselves from Avodah Zarah we're talking about a case where somebody takes either a coal or a flame out on Shabbat from a private to a public domain. So, Va'atani, we learned in Abraitha, it says in a bright that actually, if you carry a flame out, you will be liable. That's talking about where you carried it on a chip some kind of a uh, some kind of a wood chip or something that was holding the flame what about the fact that you're holding a wood chip so what do you need the flame for to make you liable for carrying on Shabbat you carried out the wood chip no it's talking about we're talking about where it was so small that, that wood chip would not reach the level of significance necessary to be considered that you carried an object from private to public domain but the flame would create that significance if you're going to be liable for carrying wood it has to be at least the amount of wood that it would take to cook a, a very easy to cook egg um, the, the easiest egg Which is a chicken egg The amount of wood That it would take To create the fire To do that Is the amount That you're liable For carrying out on Shabbat So this is talking about A much smaller Little um, uh, piece of wood And therefore It wouldn't be significant In its own right But the flame Makes it significant Now A bayam Gives a different way That you could be liable For carrying out a flame On Shabbat Kigon deshaifei limana mana. Like if you took some kind of a vessel and you put some oil in it and you lit a flame in it. What about the, right? So we're talking, what about the fact that you're carrying out a vessel? So what do you need the flame for to make you liable? That's not really being liable for the flame. That's being liable for the um, uh, for the uh, uh, for the uh, vessel itself. So he says no because. Uh, it's talking about, we're talking about a uh, a piece, basic, basically an earthenware shard. What about the fact that you're taking out an earthenware shard? We're talking about where it doesn't have the requisite measurement to uh, qualify as a shard that you'd be liable for carrying it from place to place on Shabbat. And we know that for every item there is a minimum measurement. And when it comes to an earthenware shard, it says, it's not, it says, we're talking about, we're talking about where this earthenware shard didn't have the measurement, it's not, as it says, like it says, uh, the, the amount, that's the words of Rabbi Yehuda. In other words, in, when you're carrying uh, earthenware shard out, it has to be enough to put in between, they would have these, they would have this. Uh, Uh, spaces or uneven uh, window frames or whatever it was and in order to support them they would stick shards of earthenware to support to even to make the frames of the windows even and so on and it would need to be at least big enough to serve that function. So he's talking about such tiny uh, uh, piece of earthenware that it wouldn't even qualify for that. So if that's the case what case are you not liable for carrying out a flame. After all, you need some base to support the flame. How are you going to carry a flame without something to support it? The answer is that it means that if you blow on a flame and the flame flies out into the Rashid Rabin from the Rashid HaYachid, you're not liable for that because there's no substance there to speak of. So basically, any way you would convey the flame with the physical base, you're always going to be liable because the presence of the flame gives even the tiniest physical base some significance. But when you just blow the flame out the window uh, and it goes and flies out into the it's not you're not going to be liable for that. The Mishnah says, If a person has a, uh, basically a pit of water, um, that belongs to him personally, then it's tchum, the tchum of that water, and anyone who takes water out of it, the water is limited by the tchum of the owner. Similarly, if the uh, if the uh, cistern or whatever it is, that can, the a pit of water uh, belongs to a city, so it's going to be limited by the tchum of the city, which is 2,000 amot to each direction outside the city limit. That would be the, so if somebody took water from there, even if they personally had a, and Erophet that allowed them to go further than that. They're limited by the city's limits in that case. They wouldn't be able to take it further. Vishal Ole Bavel, and the Ole Bavel, those who come up from Bavel for Aliyah uh, al they come up for the holidays. mimaleh. It goes by the feet of the person who fills it. In other words, they would make a. Uh, they had um, uh, water uh, pits and re- sort of reservoirs o- along the way from Bavel to Israel for those who were making aliyah l'regel, who were coming up for the holidays. And they were thought to belong to everybody, basically. They don't belong to any individual person. So therefore, whoever fills from that water can take it as far as their personal tchum allows them to go. And they're not restricted by anybody else's tchum. Now the Gemara says, Ramele, Ravala, Nachmat. Rav HaShot raised an objection to Rav Nachma And it says here, or It says here that if a water pit belongs to an individual, it goes by the feet of the individual, it goes by their tuchum. But we raise an objection. We said that if you have a flowing river or you have uh, a spring that is a, uh, you know, it's a flowing spring. So there is no tuchum limit on it because it's a flowing body of water. It can't really be limited by tuchum because it's always moving. So... We're talking here about somebody who has water that's contained in one place, like water, rainwater that's contained in this pit. It's not something that's flowing or that has a source underneath that's constantly uh, re- re- renewing itself. Um, we're talking about something that is standing water, basically, water that got collected in this pit. Um and therefore, it can belong to that individual and be limited by the tuchum of that individual. What do we say? We said, Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped. It was stated similarly. And that was actually what Rabbi Chia Barabin said in the Emor Shmuel that it's talking about collected waters, not moving water. Now, we said that the uh, the pits that were made by the those who, or made by or for those who are coming from Bavel to Israel. And contained water, whoever takes out the water, it goes by their tuchum. Itmar, we, the following was stated, What if I, it says the person who fills it determines the tuchum. But what if somebody fills it and gives it to his friend? So according to Rav Nachman, it goes by the person for whom it was drawn. And says, no, the action of, of collecting the water. I Meaning when you take the water, it goes by your tuchum. It's literal. It says that the one who fills it is the one who determines its home, not the one for whom it was filled. The question is, how do we look at this idea of this pit of water belonging to so many different people? Do we say that it's the kerahu? That it's actually... Uh, really hefkir, it doesn't belong to anybody. And that means that the first person who takes the water, they're going to determine the tchum. Or is it, no, it's, it belongs to partners, meaning it's not that it belongs to nobody, it's actually that it belongs to everybody. So if somebody else draws the water out for me, that's my water. Whereas if it were hefkir, if it didn't belong to anyone, then whoever picks it up, it becomes theirs automatically, and they're going to be the one to determine the tchum. So that would be the machloket, according to Av Nachman. It's more shutafin. It really belongs to everybody, and therefore, whoever picked it up for me, it becomes mine, and I would be the one who determined the tchum. And according to Rav Sheshet, whoever picks it up because it doesn't belong to anybody, so therefore, um, uh, so therefore, whoever picks it up, they become the owner of it. So now the Gemara asks, "Eti ve Ravad Rav Nachman, Rav Nachman Ravad re, objected to Rav Nachman and said, yalech amudar asur.'" If a person says that I am prohibited to you, and again we're talking about making nidarim of different sorts that prohibit somebody to benefit from somebody else. So if you say, I am cherem to you, that means you're not allowed to benefit from me. But if I say, you are khirim to me. That means I can't benefit from you. If I said, you are on me and I am on you, meaning we are both khirim on each other, you're not allowed to benefit from me and I will never benefit from you. We, that's my oath. So now, they're both prohibited, but they could both go and take from these, uh, water, uh, wells of the, uh, of the Babylonian olim, the people who came up for Ali al from Babel, but they cannot take from their local munis- municipalities' water. Right? What belongs to Ole Bavel? Harabayit. That includes the Temple Mount, the Shechot, and that includes the chambers of the Temple, the Azarot, and the courtyards of the Temple. Ubor shel Emzaderch, and also the water pits on the roads to Jerusalem. Ve Elohen Shelot Ta'ir. What's considered to belong to the municipality? Harachov, the street, the synagogue, Beit the and also the bathhouse. Now, if we're going to say that actually these these um, uh, water pits are partnership water pits okay in other words that they are uh, that they really are um, uh, belong to everybody not that they belong to nobody but they belong to everybody so then you're going to have a problem if you have partners, if you have two people, that they made an oath not to benefit from each other, and they share, they live in the same courtyard, They're not allo- neither one is allowed to go into the water well to bathe, that because it belongs to both of them, so either one who goes in is benefiting from the other one. So it's a, and if that's the case, that we consider the water pits of the uh, ole to be to belong to everyone, so that means that if I, if there's somebody among the everyone that I swore I wouldn't benefit from, then I can't benefit from this. So the Gemara says, again, so it says, You're right. So it says, you know what we're talking about there? There's a difference. Because over there, it's talking about bathing bathing you can't say i'm bathing only in the water that belongs to me you're going into the water pit or a swimming pool you're taking from everybody's water but when it comes to filling a bucket with water whatever you take was your part whatever he takes was his part so even though i swore not to benefit from him and he swore not to benefit from me and even though we're both technically partners in this body of water whatever i take out is mine whatever you take out is yours i'm not benefiting from you you're not benefiting from me but that's exactly the concept of barira, retroactive clarification. What I take is what I was destined to take from the beginning. What you take is what you were destined to take from the beginning. So I'm not taking from you and you're not taking from me. But, but none we learned if you have brothers who become partners, in other words, they inherit the estate of their father and they become partners. If they Whenever they're obligated in the kolbon, they're exempt from the masir of the animals. And whenever they're obligated in the masir of the animals, they're exempt from the kolbon. Now, what does that mean? Because basically, generally, when a person would give machatzit a shekel, so if they gave machatzit a shekel, they would also give a small surcharge along with it called the kolbon. If you give one shekel, if two people decide to partner together and give one shekel, representing each of their halves, then they have to pay the surcharge each one does. But if a father pays for his son, he doesn't have to pay the extra surcharge for the son's half. Um, so the, so if the brothers are considered one entity, it's like their father's estate still still exists and he's the one paying for them. So then you wouldn't have to have the kolbon in there, but they would have to bring maser bema because maser bema partners are exempt. However, so that's why it's saying when they're obligated in the kolbon, meaning when they've basically separated and divided up the estates. So they're really just partners at that point. So then they're obligated in the kolbon because it's not considered like their father's paying for them anymore. They're their own, they have their own holding in the estate now. But since they're partners, they reconstituted it into a partnership. They're not going to have to give the tenth of an animal tithe because that's, because, um, partners are not subject to that. On the other hand, when they're obligated to bring the maser bema because they are uh, not partners, Right, they, They've just split up the estate But they're not partners So then Then if from the estate's money They give In other words If they're still considered to be One entity They haven't divided up the estate They're still um, They're there as individuals Who inherited their portion But they haven't in, they, they all are sharing the portion still They haven't divided it up And reconstituted a partnership Basically um, so in that case, they're obligated in, ma- in ma'asir of the animal still because it's still considered one estate. However, they're exempt from the kolbon because since when they pay from the estate's money, it's as if their father is still around, then it's coming from the estate. So he doesn't have to pay the surcharge for them when he pays the machatit, uh, uh, the shekel, just like when he was alive. Okay, so dayim. This is only true if what they did was one guy took goats and another guy, another guy took sheep. One guy took sheep, the other guy took goats. According to Rav Anan, it depends. If if sons divide up an estate and there are certain types of assets, let's say sheep and goats, if one guy takes half the goats, the other guy takes half the goats. One guy takes half the sheep, the other guy takes half the sheep. So then they're even, right? They never really did anything. So now, if they become partners, they stayed together. They didn't really do anything uh, new. We just say that that was what they inherited. In other words, when the father died, he left 10 goats and 10 sheep. So, uh, and he had, uh, well, let's say he left 30 goats and 30 sheep and he had three sons. So one son inherits uh, 10 goats, the other one 10, the other one 10, one gets 10 sheep, 10 sheep, 10 sheep. So they didn't really do anything new. There was no exchange that happened. So we still see it, even if they divide that up and they now go into business partnership together, it's nothing really divided up. These are just the 10 goats I was entitled to from the beginning. They were like always mine and the 10 sheep that were always mine, and so on. Um, however, if they decided to trade, and one guy's like, look, I, I'll take the 30 goats, you take the 30 sheep. I don't want any sheep, you don't want any goats. So now they actually made a trade, so they changed the configuration of the assets, and now if they reconstitute into a partnership, it's a new partnership. That's what Rav Anan says. Rav Nachman says, he goes even further, even if they divided the goats evenly, and they divided the sheep evenly we never say that this is what he was destined to get from the beginning since there was a process involved we gave 10 goats to this guy 10 goats to this guy 10 goats to this guy 10 sheep to this guy 10 sheep to this guy 10 sheep to this guy we don't say whichever 10 sheep were the ones that he was intended to get from the outset and no change has really happened here no there is a change because now we divided it up so if we reconstitute it's a new partnership even there according to Rav Nachman so what do we see that Rav Nachman doesn't have breira meaning if somebody takes the water out of the uh well we don't say that now retroactively um that uh that person that just got what they were meant to get all along we don't say that and so if we don't say that so that so how can we say that these two partners that have an oath against each other can take from the shared well of the if we're saying that the wells of the ole Bavell, the people who come from Baville, if those wells we're saying really are partnership wells so everybody owns a piece of it. So how can I take some of it if there's somebody among the everybody who uh, I'm not allowed to benefit from? I can't just say that whatever I'm taking out of it was destined to come to me and whatever he's taking is destined to go to him. I can't say that. So what do we say? Ela, rather, what do we say? Everyone agrees that we're talking about a well. When it talks about the wells of these ole bavel, it's not talking about the shared well. It's talking about a well that is uh, is hefker. The well is definitely ownerless. It doesn't belong to anybody. Okay? Rashi says that our text here is wrong. It shouldn't say this because... Um, uh, because everyone knows that if a, if you... Uh, but literally what it means is that what the argument is, is whether if you pick up a lost object for your friend, does he acquire it? Uh, she says that that's not really a machloket because everybody agrees that if there's a hefker item, if there's an ownerless item and you pick it up on behalf of somebody else, they don't acquire it. You do. Okay? So uh, she says that what it really should say, what it really the correct text is, and... Uh, uh, it shouldn't say um, the end of the uh, Gemara that we have here, where it says "Mor "Mor One says he acquires, one says he doesn't acquire. It shouldn't say that. But meaning what it what it means to say is, as Rashi explains, "Everybody agrees that if I pick up something for someone else, they don't acquire it. I do." Right? The question is whether I, since I'm not intending to acquire it, will acquire it for myself. Since I was thinking to give it to somebody else, I don't even acquire it according to Rav Nachman. But when I give it to the other, in other words, when I give it to the person who is the ultimate recipient, that's when they acquire it. So the first person to acquire it is them, and they're the one who is going to determine the tchum. But according to Sheshet, no. Even though I'm intending to acquire it for somebody else, when I pick it up, I automatically acquire it for myself. So I was the first person to own it, and therefore I'm the one who's going to determine the tachum on that item. But the main point is that we see from here that the, this was speaking about not a uh, not a, a, a body of water that was owned by everybody, but a body of water, actually, of the ole baveil, which was owned by nobody. And that's why it was permitted uh, for people who have an oath against each other to, uh, uh, to uh, take from it. Not because of berira, because retroactively it becomes clarified, but because it didn't apply, because it didn't belong to anybody. And therefore, whoever picks it up, um, they're going to acquire it first, according to Avsheshet, according to Rav Nachman, since they had in mind to give it to somebody else when they picked it up, that person will acquire it it for the first time when, uh, when they receive it and they will determine the home of that item.